Welcome to Healthy Vision Talk Radio, the podcast for people in search of a physician with alternative solutions for their eye problems. From the best-selling, award-winning, world's-only homeopathic ophthalmologist, here's your host, Dr. Edward Kondrat. Uh, welcome, folks. Uh, this is your host, Dr. Edward Kondrat, and thank you for tuning in to Healthy Vision. We're here every Sunday evening to give you information on how you can improve your health and save your eyesight. This evening, I have a very, very exciting guest, Dr. Christine Gedrick, who's an integrative doctor from New Jersey, and we're going to be talking about the gut. And you may be asking yourself, what does the gut have to do with the eye or the brain? Well, as I'm finding out, it has everything to do, and we really need to focus on the gut. And I heard Dr. Gedrick give an amazing talk at the Patricia King seminar recently, and I said, boy, i got to have her on the radio show to share this information. So, Dr. Gedrick, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be able to speak this evening. And um, so tell us a little bit how you got interested in the gut. Well, I have an interesting story. Perhaps I should start with just a 20-second background on myself. I actually started far from the gut as a a surgeon and specifically a plastic surgeon and um, some very simple health issues became bigger problems because of how I was being managed in a very traditional model and as a result of that, my health began to fail when I was at the prime of my life and should have been nothing but healthy and I began a journey into integrative care uh, in an effort to recover my health, and that's really what began, um, you know, years later, my practice was founded on the principles that I had learned to effectively recover myself. So all integrative physicians, uh, no matter what they end up specializing in, really develop a keen sense of the gut and gut health and and know that focusing on the gut is really the cornerstone to well-being, whether we're talking about eyesight or rheumatism or high blood pressure or cardiac health. We really can be no better than our gut is healthy because that's where the base of operations is and that's where we are assimilating the inside and the outside world. So everything that we breathe, that we eat, all of our nutrition, everything is coming into the body through the gut and being processed and ex- extrapolated, if you will, but basically being digested and then pulled into the bodily tissues and nourishing the body at the cellular level, but it all starts in the gut. It's interesting. You started out as a plastic surgeon, and I started out as an eye surgeon, so we both had health issues, which kind of changed our paradigm. You know, I was taught and that, you know, Hippocrates, Hippocrates said that all disease begins in the gut. Now, I always thought that just meant, you know, you need to eat good food, you got to have good digestion, but the story is a little bit more complicated, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what is really going on in the gut and what is happening to our society. I think at the meeting someone mentioned that no one in the U.S. has a healthy gut. No, it's true. We, we really don't think about it. 
um, you know, we think nothing of taking an Advil when we have a headache or taking a Claritin when we get the sniffles in the spring or, um, you know, and, and all of them are prescriptive medications, but where are they, where are they going? They're going right into our gut. And so what is the gut? Let's be more specific. It is trillions of microbes. And what we found really since um, the beginning of the microbiome project in the U.S. and other countries worldwide, its inception in 2007, we've now determined that there are at least 10 bacterial cells to every one human cell. And so it's an extremely humbling concept to think that we are no more than a, a vehicle, a human vehicle for these bacteria, and that they are, we are intimately dependent on them, and they are responsible for our nutrition and our, our, our ability to synthesize. You know, we think about our ability to stay healthy between meals. Well, how does that happen? That happens because we've got all these little bacteria that are there maintaining B vitamin levels, maintaining glucose, maintaining all of the nutrients in our bloodstream um, are because of, the, of this machinery, effectively, that we have. And the correlate to that is that um, they are also defining our immune system, and they make the, the um, distinction between self and non-self. So many of us today are afflicted by autoimmune disorders. Well, what is that? Now we're finding that this concept of autoimmunity is really not what we thought it was at all. It's, it's, it's us losing the battle against these gut pathogens because we are eating the wrong foods, taking the wrong medications, and we're negatively impacting the healthy flora. And so commercials are cropping up, even in, you know, common time television saying to take Activia and probiotics. Well, what is that saying? That's trying to get the idea out there that we've got to think actively about how do we maintain healthy gut populations of bacteria to maintain balance and maintain an anti-inflammatory state. So there's many, many layers of this, and, and it's only now becoming better understood exactly how integral this is to our health. Well, it's really amazing. Over one trillion bacteria present in our gut, and that's a phenomenal statistic that there's 10 bacterial organisms per human cell. So these um, organisms are our friend. They're not our enemy. So, oh, absolutely. What, is, what has happened? I mean, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the elements that are destroying our gut because it actually begins at birth. That our gut begins uh, to be, be destroyed. A hundred percent. I mean, we we think. You know, today, so we have the beautiful option of a C-section if a mother is in jeopardy or the baby's in jeopardy today. But, but we don't pause to think, well, what does that do to the developing infant's gut? So a baby that comes out C-section, I had two. Sadly, I have three, three boys. My first, my only vaginal was 10 pounds. Unlucky for me because the two smaller guys were the ones that came out C-section. So I got to push him out. But the C-section babies don't come through the vaginal tract. And what's happening when those babies are in the canal is they're spending hours engulfing the mother's vaginal secretions, which then begin the, the high populations of lactobacilli are what populate the gut, which is the normal course of events. And then hopefully the baby is breastfed, 
and then bifidobacterium start to become the second population. And this is very normal for the baby, an infant, um, a breastfed infant, to be colonized by these populations. When the baby comes out by a C-section, and then, unfortunately, some babies have to go to the NICU or have to spend time being instrumented and having other kinds of skin flora contact, those populations of bacteria make their way into the infant's gut and set up all sorts of changes that we really don't even have a model for. We're starting to see the impact of that today because we're probably three generations into C-sections, but we don't know what this is doing to our long-term prognosis in terms of gut health. So this is just one example, but if you fast-forward that, you know, the introduction of solid food and then all of the additives and chemicals and food dyes, Forget us and our healthy brains or not, not healthy brain as a result of that, those chemicals. How about the poor little bacteria that are trying to survive when they're exposed to all of this stuff in our food supply? So this is where we have to start targeting our thought processes. And also, uh, the mothers after a C-section usually get high doses of antibiotics, which are Correct. then referred to the infant via uh, the breast milk. And I don't know if the hospitals now are routinely giving antibiotics to the newborn babies, um, but, you know, many times they do. So and you made a good point about these poor infants are then being exposed to the wrong bacteria. You know, the bacteria, uh, the MRSA strains, the resistant strains that are found in the hospital, so we're giving them the wrong bacteria. So uh, coming up, we're coming up to a break on healthy vision, and... My guest is Dr. Christine Gedrick, and we're talking about the gut, and it is phenomenal. I think that managing the gut is going to be the future for so many aspects of medicine, particularly my specialty of ophthalmology. And when we come back, we're going to be talking more about how the gut affects the brain. Uh, fascinating information, folks, so stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Vision, and with me is Christine Edrick, and we're talking about the gut. So many of you are probably asking, what can we do to improve the health of our gut? Well, the first step I think you've got to take is really looking at what you eat. And Dr. Gedrick, let's talk a little bit about how we're destroying our gut with the food we're eating. Well, we could be here all night, but let's, but we'll bring it down to something we can all walk away with. So, you know, it's really hard to make the translation into from the written word and the conceptualization of health and what we need to be doing to what we actually need to do when we wake up in the morning. What's the first bite of food we put in our mouth? And it's amazing that from start to finish in our practice, whether we're dealing with the smallest health issues or the largest, it's still that translational step of getting the patient to understand that their journey to wellness is as dependent on what they continue to eat as anything I could do for them. So as a first and foremost, we take gluten out of everybody's diet. And many people say, well, yeah, but doc, I'm not, I didn't test for celiac. I don't have gluten sensitivity. And I say, well, then you're one of the lucky ones that doesn't seem to know exactly how inflamed you are from that gluten. But give it 20 years and you're going to have heart disease, you're going to have the onset of dementia, you're going to have 
hypertension, or some other problem as a result of it. So the simple, simple, simple thing to do is to go gluten-free. And the reason for that is not because wheat is the enemy. It's because of what we've done to wheat. We have many patients that have European descent, and they'll say, you know, I went over to, well, I went home, and I was in Italy, and I had that pasta meal that I've been craving, and you know what? My gut, I didn't feel bloated the way I normally do. Or I didn't get a headache the way I would if, if I'd eaten it here. And they come back and they confess as if they've cheated, and they say, you didn't do anything wrong at all because it's American wheat that's been, it's been modified to such an extent that we no longer as humans can digest it properly. We need to have four stomachs in order to do it. And so some of us get away with eating it from the perspective of not knowing how much inflammation it's causing. The people out there that are being plagued with the headaches and the joint pain and the skin rashes, those are the lucky ones because they at least know to stay away from it for obvious reasons. But the whole population at large is not being well served by this American wheat, sadly. So we tell everyone to be gluten-free. That's the very basic. And then to try to avoid the foods, the biggest offending foods that are genetically modified. So those would next in line be soy and corn. And that's, that's a whole discussion in and of itself. But the genetic modifications to these foods, is basically they go through our intestines like a scouring pad. And the animal studies that have looked at the animals consuming genetically modified foods and foods that are not modified, when they do autopsies on these animals, the poor animals consuming the GMOs, they look like, you know, that their their intestines have been just rubbed raw with a Brillo pad. So the same thing yeah, there was Yeah, there was an amazing study of, uh, that was reported at the meeting we attended where they did electron microscopy of the gut lining, and 20 mm-hmm. minutes after mm-hmm. ingesting... Uh, uh, genetically modified food. Within 20 minutes, you could see these phenomenal changes in the gut lining. The gut became leaky. And you know what's scary. so bad? This is in baby food. This is in baby food. So we wonder why all these kids are ending up sick. Why do they have ADHD that starts at the age of three? Why do they have recurrent ear infections? So I tell patients all the time, I have a practice of half adults and half children, and the kids that come to see me with these recurrent ear infections, the parents want me to try to save the tonsils because they're, or the tubes. They don't want the surgery, and they say, what can we do? I say, you know, you've got to start with the diet because you think about it, the, the gut tube, we're talking about the gut, it starts at the nose and the mouth, and it goes all the way through to the bottom. So that whole oral pharyngeal nasal cavity, those are also considered the gut in the medical community. So anytime we're talking about inflammation in the upper tract, asthma, allergies, recurrent sinus infections, this is all the same to us as gut. And so we consider the same tenants. We have to change the diet immediately. And so what we generally do, and I think you heard this at the conference, we put them on largely paleo diets, which are a lot of, um, of course, vegetables. We don't need to underscore how important they are but we want a good, healthy source of protein, as clean as it can be, according to what you're able to do with your financial situation, and then a great, healthy source of of fat, incredibly important macro um, group of foods that we don't even consider as much as we should, nuts and 
seeds are wonderful. Legumes are wonderful. Um, and, of course, fruits uh, are allowed depending on the certain medical conditions we're looking at. And then we add carbohydrates in the form of starchy vegetables and potatoes and non-gluten grains back according to caloric expenditure. So if we have a young boy, for instance, that's running all sorts of sports and activities, we'll make sure that they're getting enough calories in that way. But you've got to make sure that the potatoes are not genetically modified potatoes. I know. <laughs> of course. We try and how, about to, rice? how about rice? So what's your feelings on rice? Well, rice is very interesting. You know, even the organic rices um, are coming up with a lot of arsenic today. And I test everybody through the standard lab in our area. We have LabCorp and Quest. Those are two, and BioResource. These are two of the um, big national labs, three rather. And um, there'll be blood levels of arsenic. And, and it may not be over the normal level, some are, but many are just right under normal. But what is arsenic doing in the blood at all, as far as I'm concerned? And many times when those patients come back with those levels, you'll say to them, do you eat a lot of rice? And sure enough, the answer is yes. So I really have to wonder. Um, so we do allow it, but we often, you know, we really ask patients to rotate as much as possible. I think across the board you get into trouble when you continue to eat the same foods all the time. And what are your thoughts on uh, probiotics, taking active probiotics, or are there any particular foods that can help uh, work on restoring the gut? Well, as you know, we spent that whole conference with several mixed, uh, you know, medical opinions on what's the best way to handle this. We have um, had a number of naturally fermented or cultured foods. So this is an interesting subject and one that I uh, have a fascination with, so I'll give a little soundbite. Before the advent of refrigeration, all cultures in the world used to ferment foods as a way of preserving them. And almost all of our condiments began in this fashion. So chutneys, mustards, ketchup, mayonnaise, these were all naturally cultured or fermented foods, which means they had healthy bacteria added to them, and with that, they could withstand ambient temperatures for weeks to months without going bad. And those foods were taken alongside the meats in order to help our digestive process. So insofar as people are able to get their hands on these foods, which today we see remnants of them with kefir and yogurt and some of the cultured butters and sour creams and things that are now on the market in the specialty stores. But other than taking a supplemental probiotic, I think the best way to get the natural bacteria into the gut is to do the cultured foods because this is as close as we can get to how it was done from the beginning of time. Yeah, so folks, if you're listening out there, learn how to ferment your foods and make your own sauerkraut and pickled foods. And, you know, I think that's probably the best healthy organic uh, vegetables and ferment them and make your own sauerkraut. I know I have in the past. I had a little crock pot that I put fresh cabbage in with carrots and things like that, and it's amazing. It's amazing. We've got to get more back to nature. So we're coming up to another break, and when we come back, we're going to shift gears and talk a little bit about how the gut affects the brain and the eye. There's a really, really interesting connection. And now I'm really looking at the health of the gut for 
all peace of them. Jesus, we promise. We'll be right back after this break. Uh, welcome back to Healthy Vision, and we're talking about the gut. So, Dr. Gedrick, let's uh, talk about the big issue now, how the gut affects the brain and the eye. And on break, you mentioned about a lymphatic study, so let's talk about that, too. Well, there's just an outpouring of research right now that is coming to better understand this tremendous gut-brain axis and this bi-directionality, meaning that the gut talks to the brain and the brain talks to the gut, which is just fascinating, right? Because, you know, just understanding the link in the first place is profound. So we eat, and therefore there is inflammation or lack of inflammation as a result of our choices, but then there is this immediate translation of that into the brain. But likewise, stress levels and other, and other um, uh, factors can influence the brain externally, which then impact the gut. So they are talking to each other all the time. And what's happening is, as a result of that conversation, if you will, is that the populations of gut bacteria are being modulated. So think of how fascinating that is. They've done studies to say, or to show rather, that when we meditate, we actually promote healthy levels of certain gut bacteria that reduce stress, reduce cortisol, and they, they help to lower inflammation in the gut. So isn't that, I, I find that just amazing to think of this whole undercurrent that's happening in our bodies all the time. And here's a thing I heard uh, about the belly brain, that there's two brains. The belly brain is more important than the brain up top because the belly brain is the true general that regulates the superior brain. I don't know yes. what your thoughts are on that, but the yes, brain no, is critical. Absolutely. That's the second brain. That's that's that beautiful work. And the recent study that just came out of, I believe, the University of Virginia, which demonstrated that there's actually a separate lymphatic system. So you and I learned that there was the one lymphatic system going through the thyroglossal duct and into the thymus, and um, there's now a new one that's connecting the brain and the gut directly, and it's bypassing the body. So this means that infections in the gut are directly impacting the brain chemistry. So think about the ramifications of that to the autistic population or the other um, behavioral disorders, et cetera, where we have so much, you know, what we know to be central nervous system inflammation. Could this, in fact, all be being caused? Many of us believe, believe this to be true, that this is being caused by gut inflammation at the root core and that its translation is to the central nervous system. Yeah, this unique lymphatic system that you mentioned really has me curious because, you know, some people say that glaucoma is a disease of the lymphatic system, which uh, adversely affects uh, the circulation to the eye, the buildup of pressure, and then arteriosclerotic changes and vascular changes in the optic nerve. And uh, so it's even a stronger connection now, as far as I'm concerned, with the gut and the eye. So, you know, we really got to get our patients to clean up their diet, to avoid all these harmful things that they're doing to the gut, to really, 
you know, restore, restore their health. Yeah, that's fascinating with glaucoma, and absolutely, it makes perfect sense. So I'm going to put out there a, a very simple, I have three young boys, as you probably remember from a conference, and they, they're teaching me things every day. They're, they're seven, five, and four, and they're just filled with these hilarious sayings, but I teach them so important about their food. And sometimes they buck against it and they want to defy me and run off and, you know, find some candy and hide behind a tree. But for the most part, they're compliant. And I tell them, they come to me and they say, Mommy, can I have this? And I say, well, it's pretty simple. The the two that can read, read the package. If you can pronounce everything on that ingredient label and you could find it in our house, then you can eat it. If you don't know what it is, then forget it. Put it back. And that stopped all the chitter-chat at the supermarket because now they simply know if they can read everything and they know where to find it in our pantry or in our refrigerator, that's what they're going to be allowed to have. And it's such a simple concept, and it really holds true, child or adult. It's the same exact concept all around. You know, we, we think nothing of putting these additives, you know, tw- 25 chemicals long on the food label, and that seems to be okay. We don't think about how that's impacting us. Yeah, so the bottom line is if it has a label, you probably shouldn't be eating it. That's what I tell my patients. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, the gut connection with autism, you know, because the incidence of autism is rising attention deficit disorder, that whole spectrum. Um, so what are your thoughts on the gut connection? Oh, there's so many, so many. I mean, I live in a hotbed. You know, in our area, demographically, we have the highest prevalence of autism in the U.S. I'm in Morristown, New Jersey. It's one in 67 males, one in 67. That's classified with ASD, but there are just as many that are being on, you know, that are on the spectrum that have atypical behavioral patterns, Um, and it's really tough. These are the children that I see in my practice. And so, I mean, it is so important that their diets be pristine, just like any, though. I mean, a well child or an unwell child is just as much important, okay? So that's that's the one thing. But sadly, the autistic population has a lot of sensory issues, and um, so therefore they're very difficult to eat. And I, I feel for the parents that struggle with this because... Not only is it difficult to get a well child to stay on task with their food choices, but to take a child that's so, that's so sensory or, or to have so many issues to begin with and try to get their diets well-rounded can be a real struggle. So, but it's tough, but they have to do it because if you don't feed those children well, they will never, whatever they're going to recover won't, won't be recoverable without the nutrients coming in. And, I'd like to take it one step further. You know, I, I see many, many children that have forms of, of infections. We live in a Lyme-infested area, so I'm seeing a lot of Lyme disease and, and some of the co-infections that go with that. And one of the challenges we have is actually keeping our kids well. You know, I tell um, if, if a child is bitten and, and they're in a good nutrient base, that child generally doesn't get that sick. It's an easy infection to resolve. But one of the things that happens is the nutrient base gets so low or it's so poor that these children are very hard to keep well, and, and, and they're really 
um, kind of sliding beneath the level of, of wellness simply from the fact that they're not, their bodies aren't nourished well enough. Well, it's the old saying that it's, it's not the organism, it's the terrain. And unfortunately, in our society and so many children, their terrain is not healthy. So then they're more susceptible to infections and they don't have enough of the healthy bacteria in their gut to, I guess, kind of, kind of balance. There was something else very interesting that we could talk a little bit about is this idea of this obsessiveness with cleanliness that's going on in our society that it actually could be very detrimental to us. You know, wearing plastic gloves all the time, um, using these powerful disinfectants to, to rinse our hands where actually it's not helping us. You want to comment on that? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, I don't understand this obsession with sterility. But you see, it parallels our sh- the shift in thought process about our health. We have lost, as a, as a nation, we have lost our confidence in our physical health. Nobody knows how to, re- how to get themselves better on home remedies anymore. And, and it's almost to the point of anxiety of, of, of leaving, going too far away from a CVS where there's a Z-pack because if you get a sniffle, you're going to get a sinus infection or bronchitis and you're going to get sick. It's like people don't have the sense of, you know, their own, the strength of their immune system. Our children, when they were babies, I didn't wash their hands in airports. Can you imagine? We go through during flu season and I did not wash their hands. You know what? My kids never got sick because we really allowed them to just, if they were dirty, they're dirty. That's, you know, we would before they ate, but you couldn't stop every last time they put their hand in their mouth. But that's part of what builds their immune system. And now they don't get sick. So I I think we're missing that whole component of what used to occur during infancy and early childhood. Because these kids are, are, are kept in a, it's, they're sterile. They're sterile. Yeah, years and, ago, uh, kids would go outside after school and play in the dirt and roll around and suck on twigs and, you know, they'd, they'd be outdoors. Nowadays, they, they come home, they're in a sterile environment, they're playing video games and watching TV. So it's, uh, it's just horrible. We, we, we need that exposure to bacteria to improve our overall health. So, Something has to change. Well, we're coming up to another break, and with me is Dr. Gedrick, and we will come back. We're going to be continuing talking about the importance of the gut. Okay, we're back. We're back talking about the gut, and we have a lot more material to go go through before the show ends. So on the break, uh, Dr. Gedrick and I were talking about parasites. We're also talking about kissing and sharing your bacteria. So let's talk a little bit about those items. So very interesting. We, we were closing the last segment with this idea of, you know, kids rolling around in the dirt, which we don't do anymore today. And, you know, I grew up, I grew up on a farm, and I remember finding fun in sliding down the manure pile and being filthy by the time I got in the car to come home. And, you know, what, what does that do for us? Well, now they're finding that the early introduction of parasites, as gross a concept as that may be, is uh, having really very profoundly regulatory effects on our immune system. And so some of the new um, forays into management of things like colitis 
and other autoimmune diseases, but really the colitis are kind of the first um, area that they're exploring are the, is the introduction, the active introduction of parasites into the body um, that become, you know, kind of the temporary resident for about a year and they control the colitis and then the, and then the parasite moves on because we're not the ideal host um, for that particular one. But it's very, very interesting. And we, we, we're playing, not playing, but we are addressing the issue of parasites vis-a-vis the microbiome in our practice on a daily basis and seeing how it's impacting the regulation of the immune system, both in a positive and negative way. Um, also, uh, you know, close contact with people. Uh, kissing, you're sharing your uh, bacteria, uh, which we need. We need a lot of exposure to bacteria. And maybe the most interesting uh, thing that's being done is something called a fecal transplant, which mm-hmm. you know, boggles my mind that essentially you're replacing all the fecal material with someone that has a healthy intestinal flora. And this has been an amazing treatment for some serious uh, neurological problems. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, beautiful a new area of research and um, study that is, is really exploding. Um, and as you know, we were at the conference where the, the fecal microbiota transplant, so a little more refined, we're not, not actually, and this is done at the Taymount Clinic in England, um, at least they've pioneered this work, but um, a little refined from the perspective of, of removing the actual bacteria from the fecal sample that's being transplanted instead of actually transplanting the feces itself. But interesting, what was brought up is that this has actually been in um, the traditional medical models going back, you know, ancient Chinese medicine had ways of, of doing this to restore health. If they had a, a baby, as I understood it, that wasn't doing well, they would um, either take the mother's feces and feed it or a twin or another sibling. Um, and it's really an interesting concept. I was introduced to the concept for the very first time when I was reading the literature on how some of the soil organisms that are now um, packaged in probiotics were first discovered, and it was the soldiers in the war in um, Egypt, I believe, and they were suffering from dysentery, and they were told to follow behind the camels and to eat the hot dung, and that's what cured them of the dysentery. So, you know, we're, we're, we're spending large sums of money on probiotics, and we just talked about culturing foods. You think about it, a fecal transplant is just taking the same raw material and putting it right at the source instead of having to have it pass all the way through the gut. Well, um, some closing comments. Um, you know, I think we've covered so much information, but the bottom line Maybe you could summarize what people need to do. I think, I hope we emphasize to everyone how important your gut is. And you really got, you begin taking steps to re-nourish your gut, diversify the bacteria in your gut, get your gut healthy. So some final important comments that people should begin right now. Sure. I think we think in compartments today with medicine. Your focus, of course, is on eye health, and then there's cardiologists on heart health and neurologists on brain health and so on and so forth. We're not 
globally translating these disease processes into overall wellness. And so, therefore, anytime a patient is labeled with a disease process, they have to translate in that into the fundamentals are off. There's inflammation in their gut, and that's translating at some level. Some are more direct connections than others, but at some level, the inflammation is starting in their gut. And so they may be prescribed a pill that helps them, but ultimately, to really recover from that illness, they have to start looking very closely at what they're putting in their mouth because it starts there. And it's simple. You just go back to what your grandparents were eating, right, farm to table. And if you look at the label and you can't pronounce what's on it, you probably shouldn't put it in your mouth. And you do the best you can. We all have different, you know, budgets, so we have to make choices, and some of us have to be stricter than others. But you do the best you can to make the choices to keep us healthy, and that's where it starts. And then all of these other things are um, ways to expand upon that, culturing your veg- culturing vegetables, culturing foods in general, beautiful hobby to have and, and not expensive. So that's an easy way to keep, you know, your health on track. I think um, at the conference I gave a little vignette, which is, is very dear to my heart, and my middle son ate a, a, a bad piece of food and um, others had gotten food poisoning and, and I didn't catch him in time. And he chose not to eat dinner that night, but instead walked himself to the refrigerator and poured himself a whole glass of cultured vegetable juice went upstairs, went to bed, and he never got sick. So that speaks volumes to the fact that those healthy bacteria competed for the the, the bad ones in the food he'd just eaten, and they won out because he never got sick. So these are some of the closing points, which is we have to start making these translations in terms of our global wellness. Well, we didn't really talk about uh, the connection with a leaky gut and a leaky brain. So when you do have pathology in the gut, there is an associated leakage and pathology in the brain. There's a correlation. So what if you could, before we end the show, talk maybe about the association we're seeing with an increased incidence of serious neurological problems like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and the relationship to the gut. Yeah, this is a be- this is a huge subject and a beautiful subject to explore. Um, you know, there's Dr. Perlmutter's work that he's done that that underscores the importance of the the, the leaky gut and, and its impact on um, brain health. And you know, the light bulb went off for me has gone off many times, but really went off when I realized that it's effectively the same membrane. I mean, we're talking from an embryological perspective. You're talking about a very big membrane, but it's the same membrane. And so when the gut's leaky, the brain is leaky. And, and it's, I think that's a profound concept. Um, so whenever we have, for instance, you know, something as simple as gluten intolerance, which we're all somewhat familiar with, um, it immediately means that you've got a permeability to, you know, I, I use a very simple analogy in my practice. I tell patients, you know, when their gut is leaky, The cells to go like Dr. Gedrick, we're coming to a close on Healthy Vision. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate you sharing all this valuable information with us. And, folks, uh, next Sunday, ask Dr. Conrad a question. We're not having a 
you have an opportunity to call up Healthy Vision and ask the question directly to me. So I want to thank all of you for tuning in until next week to your good health and clear vision. Like to learn more about alternative eye treatments, access free reports, or subscribe to Dr. Kondrat's newsletter, visit us at healingtheeye.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please write a review. We love hearing from listeners. To hear more episodes about alternative eye treatments, click subscribe and download all of our previous shows. We wish you good health and clear vision.